Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The Underground Railroad and Harriet Tubman's 13 missions to rescue slaves are well-known parts of our country's history. A lesser-known story is the role that Mexico played as our anti-slavery neighbor. In 1837, Mexico abolished slavery and thousands of American slaves fled to freedom by crossing the border into Mexico. Alice L. Baumgartner, an assistant professor of history at the University of Southern California, tells that story in her award-winning book, South to Freedom, Runaway Slaves to Mexico and the Road to the Civil War. It's published by Basic Books and brings Professor Baumgartner to our show now. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Now, slavery, as I said, was abolished in Mexico in 1837. Mexico was known at the time as New Spain. What circumstances led to that decision? Who had been enslaved before that? It's a pretty complicated story. And it starts during Mexico's war for independence, which was waged between 1810 and 1821. And during that war for independence, much like in the United States as a result of the American Revolution, there's this surge of anti-slavery sentiment in which Mexicans are saying, if we can't be enslaved by Spain, then surely we can't enslave other people of African descent as well. But in the wake of Mexico's independence movement, it was hard to actually abolish slavery across all of Mexico. And the reason for that was that although the reliance on enslaved labor, at least of people of African descent, had been declining across the colonial period, it remained important in two particular locations in Mexico, in southern Mexico, where there were sugar plantations and perhaps more well known to Americans, um, the Mexican province of Texas, where in the 1820s and 1830s, there was an influx of Anglo-American colonists, primarily from the southern slaveholding states, who were bringing in large numbers of enslaved people of African descent. And so the Mexican government, despite this surge in anti-slavery sentiment, didn't feel like it could abolish slavery across the entire nation for fear of inciting a revolt in those two regions that still relied heavily on slavery. And that fear was very well justified in 1829. Mexico's president, Vicente Guerrero, who was himself of African descent, issued an executive decree that attempted to abolish slavery across Mexico. But there was almost instantaneous threats of revolt from those two regions. And so he actually exempted the province of Texas from that decree a month after issuing it. And Mexico's Congress overturned that decree, along with several others, um, two years later. So that showed the real deep dangers and the threat of abolishing slavery. But the Mexican and that, government, that area is what we now call Texas. Exactly, exactly. Um, and that te- the revolution in Texas, the Texas Revolution, is actually really key to understanding the abolition of slavery in Mexico. Because mm-hmm. when Texas revolted against Mexico and secured its independence in 1836, that removed one of the centers of slavery in Mexico. And it made it much easier for the Mexican government then to abolish slavery and to claim this mantle of righteousness in its fight against Texas. And we'll get into that story a little later when we talk about the Alamo and all of that. But I wanted to ask you about something that happened in the summer of 1857 when the steamship Metacomet couldn't return to New Orleans from the port of Veracruz because two black slaves, George and James Frisbee, Frisbee, were missing. Can you describe the scene and what happened as a result? It's an incredible story where these two men, sailors, escaped from the steamship Metacomet, and there were laws uh, that were passed across the Atlantic world, in any seafaring area that required sailors who escaped from their ships to be returned. So according to that rule, as sailors, they were supposed to be returned to their ship, the Metacomet. But there was a wrinkle in this story, which was that George and James Frisbee were enslaved sailors. And so even though as sailors alone, they were supposed to be returned to their steamship, 
as enslaved people under Mexican law, they were free from the moment they set foot on Mexican soil. And this was a relatively um, new idea known to historians as the freedom principle that Mexico had enshrined just months earlier in its constitution of 1857. Um, and as a result of that law, James Frisbee, one of the two brothers, was able to actually secure his freedom in Mexico and to prevent himself from being returned to the steamship Manticomet and to slavery. And so it's by, by really, offering proof by offering proof that he was a slave. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so there is this ironic moment where actually by showing that he was enslaved, he was able to secure his freedom under this provision of Mexico's constitution. Now, if it had happened in New York or Boston, wouldn't they have been returned to their owner because of the Fugitive Slave Act, even though uh, slavery was uh, no longer in effect in New York or Massachusetts? That's absolutely right. Under the U.S. Constitution, the Fugitive Slave Clause guaranteed the return of enslaved people who had escaped to non-slaveholding states. And that provision of that constitution was enshrined in the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. And Mexico, a country that we often think of as not being a leader in anti-slavery, hmm. had a very different principle enshrined in its constitution, the principle that all enslaved people were free from the moment they set foot on Mexican soil. It's a really incredible difference. Because the indigenous people of Mexico had felt kind of enslaved as well when it was a, a colony of, of Spain? That's a really interesting history as well, where even though Mexico has this long history and very interesting, I think, important history of anti-slavery with respect to people of African descent, there is an even longer and more complicated yes. history of indigenous slavery in Mexico, which is very important um, to underscore because it, you know, it shows Mexico was by no means perfect in its fight against anti-slavery or its fight against slavery. Um, and the failure to actually eradicate indigenous slavery, which had been outlawed in the Spanish empire since the 16th century, is an example of the ways in which enforcing these anti-slavery laws was sometimes quite difficult, particularly in, say, the Spanish empire, where there are lots of far-flung vice royalties, um, where local people have much less incentive to follow those laws. Now, the U.S. ambassador to Mexico argued that the decision involving the Frisbee brothers would threaten the increasing and beneficent commerce between the nations. How did it affect relations between the U.S. and Mexico? And what happened to the Frisbee brothers? Well, it gave Mexico an incredibly powerful uh, I don't want to lessen it by saying it's a PR move, but it really is. They, they Mexican politicians make the most that they can out of this difference that we just talked about between their constitution of 1857 and the U.S. Constitution. Um, particularly in 1857, this is the year that the Supreme Court issued its ruling in Dred Scott v. Sanford, mm. which ruled that people of African descent were not U.S. citizens. Mexico's constitution said the opposite that people of, regardless of their race, were available or able to get Mexican citizenship either by birth or by naturalization. Um, the Dred Scott decision had also ruled that Dred Scott, who had been taken by his enslaver to free territory, was not free as a result of that. Of course, the Mexican constitution uh, did something differently than that. So one, on the one hand, it allowed Mexico to assume this kind of moral capital, this uh, stance that really allowed them, according to their own words, to sort of stand upright before the international community. On the other hand, it struck fear in the hearts of enslavers in the United States. And that's one way in which um, U.S. diplomats' predictions proved true, that there were a lot of white Southerners who were suddenly very afraid of bringing enslaved people anywhere near Mexico. And they would say things like, you, you could not bring enslaved people to, Southern, to South Texas, even though Texas was a slave state, because of the threat of them escaping to Mexico. And there was fear among um, people who sort of leased out enslaved people on sailing vessels 
that they would escape like the Frisbee brothers did. So there's this positive effect for Mexico. There is this negative fear inducing effect for the United States. And with respect to the Frisbee brothers themselves, they fall off the, they, we lose the archival record for them. The one thing that we do know is that George Frisbee was apprehended before James. And for whatever reason, maybe because he didn't know about Mexican law protecting enslaved people who had set foot on Mexican soil, he was actually returned to the steamship Metacomet. And James, however, was able to claim his freedom and the last I was able to find of him was that he was still in Mexico um, where he had claimed his freedom. Now, I mentioned that slavery was abolished in Mexico in 1837, but hadn't the trend uh, been even a lot earlier? Didn't a Mexican president try to end slavery by executive decree as early as 1829? Yes, absolutely. And that's a really, it's, it's not a, it's not a history that precedes in a linear fashion. Most history doesn't proceed in a linear fashion. And so the demographics of, and the reliance on slavery in Mexico is an important part of this story. During the colonial period, Mexico's reliance on slavery or the enslavement and the enslaved labor of people of African descent dwindled over the course of the colonial period. And historians debate how long or when exactly that happened and why it happened. But suffice it to say that by the 18th century, the reliance on enslaved people was considerably lower than it had been in the earlier period of um, New Spain, as Mexico was then known. Um, between 1580 and 1640, New Spain actually imported more enslaved Africans than any other viceroyalty in the hmm. uh, Spanish Empire, except or in the in the Americas, except Brazil. So it had this early reliance on black slavery that then um, just dwindled. So by the time that Mexico took up arms against Spain in 1810 there were only about 10,000 enslaved people in of African descent in Mexico. So that's a that's quite a small number, especially when you consider how many enslaved people of African descent were in the United States at that same time. It was about a million. So the demographics are a huge part of it. That and and also there were uh, steps to end slavery gradually by enacting a free womb law prohibiting yeah. the entry of enslaved people. Although all of this goes back to some degree to a 13th century legal code from the Spanish Empire called Siete Partidas. Yes. So there's a, a long history in the Spanish Empire of um, passing these laws that would erode slavery. And the Siete Partidas are, are part of that longer story. And there's some really interesting work that's coming out soon um, by a historian named Emily Burquist that's going to really increase our knowledge of um, that anti-slavery movement in the Spanish Empire and its effects more broadly. So why is there an anti-slavery sentiment from as early as the 13th century? Part of it has to do with religion. Spain is, of course, a Catholic country, Catholic empire. And there was a sense in which enslaved people, while subject to the control of their enslavers, were also members of the Catholic Church. And that fact, the fact that enslaved people were not just subject to their enslavers control, but also subject to um, sort of religious, they were part of a religious community made, a, I'm, I'm oversimplifying here, but it created a different um, set of laws and regulations for slavery than it did in, say, the 13 colonies of, the, of what would become the United States. My guest on today is Leonard Lopate at large here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org is Alice L. Baumgartner. Her book, South to Freedom, Runaway Slaves to Mexico and the Road to the Civil War, is available through basic books. Well, how important, you mentioned cotton. Uh, was cotton only grown in that area that later became Texas? Because it, it was, was considered a luxury fabric throughout the world at the time, wasn't it? Absolutely. So Texas was one of the main places where cotton was being grown in Mexico. But it was also grown um, further south 
from what we now know as the state of Texas in what is now northeastern Mexico in places like the state of Coahuila. And so there was this burgeoning cotton production going on a little bit further south in Texas, too. It wasn't just in, in that one province. Didn't slaveholders argue that interference with slave ownership would infringe on their property rights? Yes. And this is one of the ways in which the different histories of Mexico and the United States, I think, is really important and revelatory. In the United States, enslavers argued that not only could the federal government not free the enslaved people they held at that very moment, they also argued that the federal government could not free the children of those enslaved people. And they also argued that the federal government had no right to prohibit them from taking enslaved people wherever they pleased. The Mexican government, whose constitution they consider had a, them movable property. Exactly, chattel, chattel property. Mm. Uh, the Mexican government, which extended the same property protections in its constitution, however, interpreted those with respect to slavery quite differently. The Mexican government did suggest, or its action suggested, that their interpretation of their constitution said that you couldn't you couldn't free enslaved people without providing compensation to enslavers, but that the state and national governments very much could prohibit the importation of enslaved people and that they could free the children born to enslaved people. So they took a different interpretation of enslaved property in a way that did lead, really resembled much more the northern states of the United States, places like New York, which had passed these gradual emancipation laws that, again, freed children born to enslaved people um, and prohibited the importation of enslaved people. So it shows us, I think, that the way that slavery developed and the interpretation of the law of slavery in the South, didn't, it did not have to be that way by any stretch of the imagination. Well, the U.S. Constitution gave slave owners several protections. So, yes. um, and of course, we're, now we're talking about Mexico doing something totally different. Um, in your book's introduction, you make a point of clarifying words you use in the book, words like property, American, and Southerner. Why was that important to do? Well, one of, I'll, I'll talk about Southerner first. Okay. The, um, because this is one that I, um, I, my friend and mentor Peter Wood has been making this argument for decades now, and it still hasn't quite um, set set in. That when we use Southerners, we often think of you know the Scarlet O'Hara's, the White Southerners, even though in the South, in states like South Carolina. People of African descent, even in the 19th century, were a majority, and earlier were a majority. So when we say Southerners and we're talking about white Southerners, we are actually ignoring that majority of the population. Although they and were only considered to be three-fifths of a person in, in many places. That's true. That's true. But I think that we, you know, we reject that idea that they were three-fifths of a person, even just for the purposes of representation. And if we reject that, and if we take seriously the idea that Black Lives Matter, I think we really have to be careful about what we mean when we say Southerner. Um, if we mean white Southerner, we should say white Southerner. If we mean yeah. all Southerners, white and black, then we should say Southerner. Um, but I think that attention is, yeah, it's really um, to, not, to not ignore the fact, to not play into the idea that people of African descent in the South somehow didn't count or didn't count as much. Or count so as Americans, even though they were born here? Exactly. And, and, of course, uh, the, the other word we mentioned was property. So uh, pro property was just handed down from one generation to another. Yes. And I think that we, um, or it seems to me that often we assume that the American interpretation of property in which enslaved people were sacrosanct as property in the same way that you know, a horse might be, <laughs> that we need to historicize that. We need to understand that that conception of property wasn't the only conception of property. Uh, Mexico is a good counterpoint there. 
And we need to understand that it wasn't inevitable that that was the interpretation of property, that it wasn't inevitable that enslaved people were going to be considered as property. And so I put that in quotation marks just to remind us of the fact that that word has many different meanings in different contexts and could have had a different meaning in the southern states. Was the relationship between the United States and Mexico generally friendly in 1837 when Mexico abolished slavery? No. <laughs> Mexico was... Uh, so 1837 was a year after the Texas Revolution, and already the Republic of Texas had approached then U.S. President Martin Van Buren to see if the United States might annex the Republic of Texas. And the Mexican government, which had never recognized the independence of the Republic of Texas, who still considered Texas to be part of Mexico's patrimony, did not want the United States to annex Texas. That would have been a little bit like if in 1861, when the southern states had seceded, if Britain or France had said, oh, we're going to annex you to our, our empire now. Um, it was considered to be a violation of Mexican sovereignty. And but so, it's interesting that secession in all those cases was because of slavery. Exactly. Yes. Secession operated. Um, uh, in pretty pretty interesting ways and is interpreted differently in in those two cases in ways that I think are quite um, quite interesting. Now, how important was the U.S. sense of superiority uh, from your book? I get a sense that racism plays a role here. An American diplomat who negotiated the Treaty of the U.S.-Mexican War said, and I'm quoting, among the nations of the earth, we are the one above all others. <laughs> Mexico <laughs> occupies the very lowest point of the same scale, a point beneath even the one proper to the Indian tribes without our borders. Yes, it's quite, um, they're quite explicit in their um, racist interpretation of the hierarchy of nations. And that quote says it perfectly that this is, the, the United States really, American politicians in general, even those who um, might be from northern states who might be more inclined towards anti-slavery, um, really look down upon Mexico in ways that make it hard for them to really take seriously the anti-slavery laws that Mexico is passing. Well, were the Mexicans he was negotiating with aware of those sentiments? Oh, absolutely. Um, in fact, there was, before the U.S. war with Mexico, which was fought between 1846 and 1848, the Mexican or Mexican leaders often would point to that racist rhetoric as yet another reason why Mexicans had to be really wary of the United States annexing Texas or invading Mexico. They, you have politicians in Mexico claiming that the Yankees were going to come to Mexico and enslave them all because many people in Mexico have you know, indigenous ancestry or ancestry from people of African descent. And um, so they were very, very much aware of that and, and very concerned by it. Now, the, you say that the real change occurred uh, with the Anglo colonists in the province of Tejas. Um, uh, they fought in the Texas Revolution to ensure that slavery would persist, and uh, that's why we remember the Alamo. <laughs> yes. Although oh, the recently Alamo. there was a book called Forget the Alamo, which was yes. banned in Texas. Uh, it's, uh, yes, if only, <laughs> it's just, um, that's a great book. Um, but it really uh, shows us well, maybe let me back up a little bit. Go ahead. The, the, the Alamo, which is you know, in San Antonio, is very far from the centers, the population centers of eastern Texas at the time of the Texas Revolution. And so there were commanders in Texas who, like Sam Houston, who did not want to defend the Alamo because it was so far away from those plantation centers. 
And one of the reasons why the decision was ultimately made to defend the Alamo, to try to claim it, was to stop the Mexican army from getting anywhere near those plantations that we talked about earlier in eastern Texas, because they were afraid that the enslaved people on those plantations were going to escape to join the Mexican army. So even though this was not a, a strategically or militarily important location, the idea was to try to stop the Mexican army from getting anywhere close to enslaved people um, and threatening to have them revolt. So even just the decision to defend the Alamo, much less what happened there, had a lot to do with the defense of slavery, which is something that in um, many of the debates in Texas seems to be a, a, a fact that is conveniently overlooked. So that uprising was in, in 1836, and as we said, in 1837, the Mexican Congress decided to abolish slavery. Um, how was it received throughout the country, other than in the area that later became Texas? It's really interesting because in 1829, when Mexico's president, Vicente Guerrero, had issued that executive decree that I mentioned earlier abolishing slavery, there was a lot of protest in southern Mexico, in states like Campeche and Veracruz. And in the archives, at least, what I was able to find, I didn't find any similar outburst against that um, in those areas in 1837. And I don't know why that is. There's not really evidence to point us one way or another. One explanation might be that those areas had already been moving away from slavery. A lot of the historians who've done work in those sort of more local archives in southern Mexico have really argued that there really wasn't that much reliance on black slavery at that time anyways. So that might be part of it. Um, but outside of those slaveholding, that, that one remaining slaveholding region, the response to abolition in Mexico was uh, one of like pride and jubilation. Um, it was even though even though in the pre-colonial uh, times, uh, the Aztecs kept slaves. I mean, every one of the uh, the major groups kept slaves uh, that they had captured from uh, rival uh, nations in the oh, country. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But they considered so slavery was not new, new and enlightened and different from that past. Um, and so there is there hypocrisy involved in here? Absolutely. Mm. Um, there are, I mean, indigenous people were held in slavery and sold into slavery in Cuba mm. during this time, too. So hypocrisy, definitely there. Although I would challenge any listener to think of any sort of social movement or any decision that didn't have some element of, of hypocrisy, mm. according to our modern standards. So absolutely. Um, but at the same time, the fact that the Texas Revolution was a point of national shame that these you know, upstart Anglo-American colonists in this far-flung province were able to secure their independence from the Mexican government. That was that was not good. And abolishing slavery and being able to frame that revolutionary movement as a defense for slavery against which Mexico was very clearly opposed, that allowed many Mexicans to sort of find victory in defeat. And so I think that that point that Mexicans, for all of the complex and hypocritical ways in which they continue to allow for slavery, um, they nonetheless passed this law that gave that that's that that gave to enslaved people the right to claim their freedom. And for those enslaved people, that was significant, even if it was marred by hypocrisy by the people who had passed it. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large at WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Oh, freedom. Slave, I'll be 
my conversation with Alice Baumgartner. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, South to Freedom, Runaway Slaves to Mexico and the Road to the Civil War. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and then the number 2, WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. And uh, be sure to make that $50 donation in the name of London Lopez at large. And we thank you very much and return now to Alice L. Baumgartner. The book again, South to Freedom, Runaway Slaves to Mexico and the Road to the Civil War from Basic Books. Now, um, following uh, the, uh, the, the decision by Mexico to abolish slavery, didn't some slaves from the American South travel to Mexico in search of freedom? What was the journey south to freedom like for those men and women? Yes, they did. Um, the, I'll start by saying that it's very difficult to get a lot of archival information about what the journey for these enslaved people was like. And at first, when I was doing the research for this book, I found that very frustrating because I wanted to be able to tell that story. But I came to realize that the fact that there was so little evidence to be found about those journeys actually spoke to the success of those journeys. Isn't that interesting? Because we know a lot about the Underground Railroad. Uh, William Still, a Philadelphia-based abolitionist and a conductor of the Underground Railroad, wrote a book called The Underground Railroad Records in 1872. But the Mm -hmm. the history of the Southern Route to Mexico for slaves seeking freedom wasn't well documented. So how did you find your primary source material? Well, that's a very good point about the differences between the Underground Railroad that ran to the north and this escape route to the south. And a lot of that has to do with the anti-slavery movement and the abolitionist movement in the United States, which sought out um, freedom seekers to tell their stories, to tell their narratives like Frederick Douglass. And we don't see the same thing happening in Mexico for a variety of reasons. Um, there's The literacy rates are a lot lower. The anti-slavery movement in Mexico, while present, is much less organized. Um, so I really, I keep hoping that maybe there will be some <laughs> slave narrative that someone will find in an era attic at some point that has to do with um, an enslaved person escaping to Mexico. But at the moment, um, and while I was writing my book, the sources were uh, one of the best sources was actually from the Mexican Mexican sources themselves. So there were court records that I found in Mexico against kidnappers from the United States who had Mm. come to Mexico to try to kidnap freedom seekers who had sought refuge in Mexico. And so the testimonies that were taken about those attempted kidnappings gave us some sense of what life was like for enslaved people in Mexico. And perhaps I can just tell um, one story of an enslaved woman named Matilde Genes, who was owned by an enslaver named William Cheney of Cheneyville, Louisiana, which is um, about 120 miles away from New Orleans. And at some point, um, we don't really know when or how. Again, this is a point where the journey itself is is pretty hard to um uh, sort of understand. But at some point, Matilda Hennes was able to get from Cheneyville, Louisiana to Reynosa, Tamaulipas in northeastern Mexico, and she found employment in the house of a man named um, um, Manuel Luis del Fierro. And so she is an example of a freedom seeker who is able to join the workforce in Mexico. Northeastern Mexico was notoriously always in need of extra laborers. And so having an enslaved person from the United States who had come and was willing to work, um, that was something that people in Mexico were willing to hire them 
Um, Although they didn't get very good jobs, did they? they no, no. They, they had a couple of options, either to enlist in the military to defend Mexico at the northern border or work as day laborers and indentured servants. So yeah, and I, were, were the work I, conditions all that different from those on southern plantations? But I think that that let's take let's take that um, in, in in bit by bit on southern plantations, enslaved people counted as property. According to the law, there were very few rights that those enslaved people had. And while the rights that were available to poor people of all races in Mexico were uh certainly not what we would hope and the economic opportunities not what we would hope i do think that having personhood and having citizenship that that meant something it was far from perfect and i want to really underscore the ways in which uh the promise of freedom in mexico was not at all what it was not a canaan and it was not a promised land but i do think that it was better than plantation slavery. And I would even go so far as to say, I think it was better than the types of work that freedom seekers were able to find in the northern states in the United States for two reasons. Different in Canada again? Canada is a little, well, in the northern states, the fugitive slave clause of the constitution applied. So enslaved people who were kidnapped by their enslavers, that was perfectly legal in the United States in a way that it was not in Mexico. So enslaved people who escaped to the Northern States were always subject to that uncertainty. In Canada, it was uh, more complicated. Um, Canada had not passed an explicit law that said, we're not gonna return enslaved people, but Canadian officials often helped those enslaved people to defend themselves against kidnappers. Um, so Canada was better, <laughs> but in the Northern States and in Canada, enslaved people or freedom seekers were relegated again, as in Mexico to these low wage bottom rung jobs. Mm. Um, so that's one similarity that we see across these areas. But I think if we just imagine what would it be like if you were an enslaved person in Texas and you had the option of say going to Louisiana and trying to travel north along the Mississippi, say, <laughs> to get to a northern state. Would that be the calculation you would make or would you try to go to Mexico hmm. where you had legal protections against being returned to slavery? Obviously those legal protections didn't always um, realize, didn't always help, help everyone. Um, well, uh, but well, Mexico had adopted a new constitution that granted citizenship regardless of race just exactly. Three months before the Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision it's that no really person incredible. of African descent could be a U.S. citizen in yep. 1857. Yeah, and I think that 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 is quite a meaningful difference, um, as we know from the work of historians like Stephen Kantrowitz, that for enslaved people, freedom was obviously very important, but belonging and citizenship and uh, that that was equally important. And that was available in Mexico in ways that it was not available in the northern free states. How many slaves chose to go south to freedom? Do we know? Oh, the numbers are always uh, going to be or at least from my research, it was hard to arrive at a definitive number for many of the same reasons that it was hard to be able to understand how, how did someone like Matilda Hennis get from Louisiana to northeastern Mexico, um, that enslaved people who were escaping were trying their utmost to avoid detection, both by their enslavers and, of course, uh, by any, any future person trying to discover that. So a lot of, um, <laughs> a lot of the numbers have to come with a big asterisk that it, it could be more or less in a significant way. Um, but my estimate was between four, four and 6,000 um, in the four decades leading up to the Civil War. So admittedly, a pretty small number, especially yeah. when we can about 10 percent to about 10 percent of the, the numbers that were headed north. Exactly. So a lot, a lot smaller numbers that we uh, 
conservatively estimated three to ten thousand, as opposed to thirty thousand to a hundred thousand going north. By yes. the way, uh, I wanted my audience to know that I'm speaking with Alice Baumgartner, assistant professor of history at the University of Southern California, about her award-winning book called South to Freedom. Runaway Slaves to Mexico and the Road to the Civil War, published by Basic Books. This is WBAI dot, uh, WBAI and WBAI.org. Uh, we are also streaming live. Um, you tell the stories of a number of people who escaped to Mexico. Jean-Antoine, Honorine, mm. Francois Dupuy, Beryl Daniel. Are those good stories? I mean, I think they're, uh, they, they stopped me in my tracks in the archives. Um, mm. So they're, but they're, they're not always happy stories. And maybe I can just tell the story of Jean Antoine, which is perhaps the most devastating of the stories that I came across. Um, Jean Antoine was an enslaved person of African descent in Louisiana. There's some indication to suggest that he had been illegally imported to Louisiana from Cuba. Um, but regardless of his origin, in 1835, he managed to slip unnoticed onto the hold, into the hold of a ship that was bound for Campeche in southeastern Mexico. And it took you know, many days into the voyage for the crew of that ship to realize that there was someone in the hold of their ship. And they searched and searched. But Jean-Antoine somehow managed to remain hidden in that dark hold. But by the time the ship reached Campeche, the crew went to the port commander and asked for reinforcements to try to find whoever was on board that ship. And as a result of those extra reinforcements, they were able to find Jean Antoine. And this was 1835, so it was before Mexico had abolished slavery mm -hmm. in 1837. And there was no official extradition policy to return enslaved people. Even during the 1830s, the Mexican government refused to agree to such a policy. Um, but because there was no explicit law prohibiting slavery in Mexico, the port commander in Campeche decided to return Jean Antoine to his enslavers in Louisiana. And I think that that point is important because it shows the ways in which the 1837 law abolishing slavery, even though it was never perfectly enforced, that it did have significance for these types of decisions that were made at the local level. Do you return an enslaved person or not? Um, having that law did matter. Well, I was going to talk about Honorine because she escaped with the mm. help of a Louisiana merchant. And I was wondering if how many women made the trip south to freedom. Were they equal in numbers to the men? Yeah, well, that was one of the things that I found most surprising during this research, that I found a number of enslaved women who escaped. I already mentioned Matilde Hennes. Honorine was another woman who, again, escaped um, from... Louisiana into what was then Mexican Texas. And so the, again, the exact numbers are very hard to come by and the exact demographic breakdown, how many were women, how many were men, um, hard to know exactly. Um, but we do have from these individual stories that come up in Mexican archives and diplomatic records where you know, someone's tried to extradite a freedom seeker, we do see enslaved women, which is really incredible um, and, and really quite a difference from what we're seeing in in archives in the United States where the most of the evidence suggests that the vast majority of freedom seekers were men. You were going to uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Jean Antoine as well. Oh, yes. Yeah. So Jean Antoine, unfortunately, meets a very sad fate um, that he is discovered in Campeche. The port commander orders him to be returned on the next boat, returning to New Orleans. And through some, uh, I don't know if it was just chance or if this was purposeful, but then the next ship bound for New Orleans was captained by a Mexican citizen who the previous year had been accused in New Orleans of having helped another enslaved person to escape to um, northeastern Mexico to a place called Matamoros. And 
So how was it possible that this was the captain who was returning Jean-Antoine? But unfortunately, this coincidence didn't necessarily help Jean-Antoine because the archives, the archival evidence shows that this captain returned Jean-Antoine to the uh, to, to New Orleans. But as Jean-Antoine was being unloaded from the ship, he pulled out a dagger that no one knew he had, a dagger that perhaps he had found when perhaps that this Mexican ship captain had given him. We, we don't know. Um, but he stabbed himself hmm. while being unloaded from the ship, which is just every time I tell this story, it brings me back to reading this account from the Mexican consul in New Orleans of him witnessing this event. And There's so much Antoine, more story to tell. <laughs> and There's we don't so have a heck of a lot of story, a lot, lot of time. But uh, annexing Texas was an attempt by the U.S. to prevent interference from Great Britain. Why were the British involved? Uh, and didn't the annexation lead in part to the Mexican-American War of 1846-1848? It did. So. One of the, I, I mentioned how immediately after, or almost immediately after the Texas Revolution, that uh, Texas emissaries were sent to Washington, D.C. to try to convince the United States to annex Texas. And Martin Van Buren, the president at that time in 1837, when these initial um, requests were being made, uh, was very hesitant to agree to them because he recognized that annexing Texas was going to perhaps cause a huge sectional controversy, so a controversy between the slaveholding and non-slaveholding states. And so he held out. And many subsequent um, administrations also held out for that same reason. They didn't want to start a huge a controversy over Texas. And so not or slaveholding um, and pro-slavery politicians needed to find some other reason to make the case for why the annexation of Texas was important. And the idea that they lit upon was to argue that the British were trying to convince Texas to abolish slavery um, in exchange for Britain assuming Texas's ballooning debts. I went to the National Archives in England. I searched and searched and searched. I found no evidence that this was true at all. If anything, British diplomats were getting instructions to not interfere with slavery in Texas at all, um, to not even talk about slavery. So there's a lot of evidence, I think, to suggest that this was sort of a, a ruse, a political ruse of sorts to try to um, galvanize public sentiment well, in the United I States in favor of annexation. In 1861, uh, Benito Juarez and Abraham Lincoln negotiated an extradition treaty that prohibited the return of fugitive slaves. Mm -hmm. uh, were concessions made to reach that uh, decision? And uh, we have about a minute and a half. Okay. <laughs> um, and I want, I want to mention the, the Missouri Compromise. We have so much oh, to talk yeah. about. Oh, yeah. so much to do. I've been talking too much. Um, but the no, you're not talking too much. It's important <laughs> to know these things. Uh, the short answer is that the the Lincoln the, the Mexican government had refused to agree to an extradition treaty that included fugitive slaves throughout um, from from really the 1830s until the 1850s. But with the Lincoln administration finally being willing to agree to that stipulation that they weren't going to return fugitive slaves, finally mm -hmm. Mexico and the United States were able to agree to an extradition treaty of other sorts of uh, criminals, um, not including fugitive slaves. So. Uh Leading up to the Civil War, northern politicians wanted to maintain abolition in the territories that had been taken from Mexico, while southern politicians wanted to extend slavery into those territories. And that played a role in overturning the Missouri Compromise, didn't it? This yes, is the last question because I'm out of time. Okay, I'll try to be fast, and this is a I mean, are you story. arguing the abolition of slavery in Mexico contributed to the Civil War? I am. Um, and the reason for that is that the U.S. war with Mexico, which led to the conquest of what is now the American Southwest, was the first time in U.S. history where the United States had conquered or acquired territory where slavery was explicitly abolished. And that was a problem because up until that point, the United States had acquired territories where there was really no, you know, slavery was allowed, whether it existed or not, was another question. And so that allowed the U.S. Congress to sort of divvy up the, the territories between 
slave holding and non slave holding states. But after the acquisition of this territory where slavery had been explicitly abolished, northern politicians and even some politicians from slave holding states, like Senator Thomas Hart Benton of Missouri, argued that the Constitution did not allow Congress to reestablish slavery where it had been previously abolished. I've got to leave it there, argument, unfortunately. Yeah, well, um, that, that's great, about it. That's my, that's my pitch for why this is important, even if the numbers are small. My great thanks to Alice Baumgartner. Her book, South to Freedom, Runaway Slaves in Mexico and the Road to the Civil War, is published by Basic Books. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Kate Kwan Allison for preparing today's interview. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our 700 or more past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Uh, our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. into this new year. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212 209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and the number two WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, if you make a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at large right now, you can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, South to Freedom, Runaway Slaves to Mexico and the Road to the Civil War by Alice Baumgartner. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy for 10, 15, 20, $25 a month until you decide you no longer want to do it. And that allows us to plan for the future. Uh, either way, we hope you'll call us the number again, 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. Remember that this station is historic, the only one, the New York Radio Dial, that's 100% listener-sponsored. We hope you'll help keep us alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And we also hope that you'll join us again tomorrow when our guest will be Adam Hochschild discussing his new book, American Midnight. We'll see you then. Mm-hmm.